House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren. Who else would I be? Uh, Co-hosting today is Mr. John Topenhaver. How are you doing, John? I am fabulous. How are you, Al? Well, I'm not anything close to you, but uh, <laughs> I mean, my book's in the same bathroom, but uh, I have you. So now, so you were at the Sleuth Fest or whatever that? Sleuth Fest. Yes, it's in, uh, it was in Boca Raton this year. It's kind of a, um, a prime conference focus that really focuses on, um, you know, I guess education, or, or rather, I should say, you know, teaching people how to write. It's more of a writer-centric, I guess, um, regional uh, uh, conference. It's, it was lovely. It was a good event. Um, I, I really enjoyed myself. Yeah, yeah. I saw some good authors there. I saw Ellen Orloff. He's always fun. Yeah, that was great. Good writer and stuff like that. But so, what were you doing there? <laughs> I was presenting on a few panels, and I got to read at Noir at the Bar from The Savage Kind, and um, yeah, just doing those sorts of things. We had a panel on um, how to write killer characters, and another panel on, you know, uh, whether you should choose a sleuth to write about or a PI to write about. Um, I'm excuse me, a, um, an amateur uh, detective or a PI to write about, and so... Um, which was interesting. Um, but yeah, so yeah, we just kind of cover different topics. Wow. Did you have your hair all done and your nails and stuff? Cause you're like the Lambda winter star. And Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, you know, I did a full spa day and, um, had, uh, you know, someone dress me for my events and big entourage. Oh, of course. Yes. Yes. Several, several limousines. Yeah. Everyone thought it was Lady Gaga coming. <laughs> Yeah, they're like, you know, it must be Lady Gaga, and I uh, know it's John Copenhaver. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that's nice. I, I'm just lucky if I get a, I get a chance to clip my toenails these days, Al. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's nice, but you know, um, and so now, now speaking of Lady Gaga, we've got instead we we didn't get her, so don't. Everyone sit down again. We we got that <laughs> lady Anne Aptaker. So thanks for being here, Anne. Well, thank you. Gosh, um, I'm not Lady Gaga, um, but I'll try and do my best to be just as fabulous. Um, <laughs> though I, I though I don't wear high heel shoes, but let's just say this way: I would date Lady Gaga. So how about that? Okay. Well, there we go. That's close. Close enough. Close enough. As close as we I think I might date Lady Gaga. Oh, please. <laughs> oh. Get in line, John. Get in line. <laughs> yeah, and you have to stop dressing like her, you know. She's not going to date someone that looks like her. Come on. <laughs> so, but, but, Anne, you have that great lifestyle. You've won all these awards, and you, you're in Paris every year. And, my God, you must you're, you are very, very well-to-do, uh, exceptional writer. Um <laughs> What do you think people um, get wrong about you the most? Uh, gee, uh, well, okay, what they get wrong <laughs> is actually quite a, quite a lot. Um, they think I'm nice, and oh. I disabuse them of that. Uh, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind to people, and I'm courteous, and I try and do my best to be, um, you know, a, a, a reasonable human being. But when you're a writer, you're just innately selfish. Right, John? Right, Al? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, everything that comes out of uh, everybody's mouth, you, you absorb and take in, and they just have to be prepared that it will come back at them uh, when they're reading about themselves uh, being killed off by crime writers such as ourselves. Um, other than that, what if people get wrong about me? Well, because I go to Paris every year where I stay in a friend's apartment um, free of charge, which is awfully nice of her to do. I just sort of, you know, contribute to the household food and that sort of thing, but it's rent free. Lucky me. Um, so there's this sensation, I guess, that people have that I have this very glamorous life. Well, Paris is three months out of my year. And then the rest of the year, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, I'm looking very closely at a bench in Port Authority bus terminal, something like that. <laughs> well, 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 
Whose whose place do you stay at in Paris? Is that Gaga's place? <laughs> you guessed. Oh my god, <laughs> that's the friend. <laughs> that's the friend. Um, well, I can't tell you. You know, it's the old expression. I would tell you, but then I'd have to kill you because she's very secretive. Um, but she goes by another name in Paris, and I cannot reveal it. <laughs> oh well, there we go. So it's very, very <laughs> Lady Goo Goo. Um, well, that's uh, so. Where do you do? Your, is that where you do your writing? That's interesting. Do you do your writing when you're the, in Paris in that in Gaga's apartment for three months? <laughs> um, <laughs> I wish it was Gaga's apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Um, although the, the apartment that I'm in is a very dear friend and, um, you know, it's, it's every bit as good as Gaga's apartment. It's every bit as loving and, and warm and wonderful. Um, but yes, I do write when I'm there. I also write when I'm not there. Uh, you know, the only way to turn out a book is to write constantly. And it takes me anywhere from a year and a half to two years or more to write each book. Um, so yes, I write when I'm in Paris. In fact, the book that's out now, Hunting Gold, and the book that preceded it, Murdering Gold, were written largely in Paris. Not completely, but, but largely. Uh, and when I'm back there this September, October, and November, I'll be researching a book actually that's going to take place in Paris um, at, the, at the early stages of World War II. So that, you know, that's going to be taking up a lot of my time is doing actually on-site research and also writing the book. Yeah, it would. I, I find this an interesting time period. Plus, like in this new book you've got, this is book six of Correct. Tanter Gold Crime Series. Right. And, and you're talking about, um, you know, the American dream, you know, the in the conformist 1950s and mm-hmm. same-sex romance. So when you get into that, do you have a point to that? Like what, what is, where does this come from? Um, well, it comes from, I guess, all of our life experience uh, in the LGBTQ world. And I set the books, the series in the 1950s, when it was absolutely illegal for us to live an out life. And Cantor, Cantor Gold refuses to be subjected to those kinds of oppressive laws if she can avoid it. In a way, she can't avoid it. But what she says is the big no. She says, I'm not going to live like that. She lives as an out lesbian. Uh, very dapper. She has her clothes custom tailored and she's just out there and she can afford it because she's decided, as many of my readers know, she's decided that if the law is going to identify her as a criminal, essentially just for who she takes to dinner and who she takes to bed, you know, essentially just for living, that instead of living on the right side of the law and being, say, a legitimate art dealer, she becomes an art thief and a smuggler. And she's very successful at it. She makes gobs of money. And the money, of course, protects her somewhat from the oppressions of the law. Um, so it allows me as a writer to address those issues without, you know, without sort of beating one's over the, beating the reader over the head with it. It's still a, a crime story, a murder mystery, a whodunit and all of that. But I want my readers to be heavily invested emotionally in Cantor and her world. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't lose the thread or the thing. No, no. This, this new book, if I may, this new book, that the most, the latest one, Hunting Gold, which actually releases officially tomorrow. Well, tomorrow from the time that we're, 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 we're recording this. So tomorrow would be July 12th. I don't know when this is going to air, but in any event, um, the dedication page for that book is it, this book is dedicated to everyone who insists on having a place in the world. And in this book, Cantor's place in the world as a human being is being stalked and challenged and threatened. And I think in these times, even though I write about this book takes place in 1955, um, that situation, of course, is really uh, still relevant to all of us today in the LGBTQ world. Our rights are very definitely being threatened. And our place in the world, therefore, is being threatened. So someone like Cantor Gold comes along and says, no, you're not going to threaten me in the world. Um, and I hope that our, that the readers become, you know, very emotionally invested, not only gay readers, but straight readers, any readers. We all have our threats against us, whether we're members of a minority community or not. You know, the world is not an easy place to live. And somebody like Cantor Gold comes along and she can carry the mantle for all of us to give the powers that be the big no, 
you know, we're going to live our lives despite your best efforts to crush us. And that would be true for anybody. Uh, but there, there must be a difference. Like, like in today's date, you know, there's the Supreme Court um, mm-hmm. problem and the Donald Trump and all that sort of thing. But um, I doubt that we'll ever go back to being where it's illegal. I, I, I don't see that going that far. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't feel as confident. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't feel as comfortable. I don't feel as confident as you are in uh, in saying that it will, won't go back to making us illegal again. I think the threat of that is out there. Now, whether that actually happens, I don't know. You know, I think the chances are 50-50. The difference would be, at the time that we were illegal, we weren't fully organized yet to fight back. That's kind of was on the horizon. And uh, in Murder and Gold, the book that preceded this current one, Cantor actually talks about that. It was the beginnings of the homosexual rights movement, which is what that was called at the time. But, um, they, you know, people were not as organized uh, as we are today. Now, if we were to be declared by the Supreme Court illegal again, um, we have the tools, the political tools to fight back in a way that Cantor's generation in the 1950s did not. So you may be right in that we won't suffer being illegal again, but I, I, I don't have the confidence that they won't try. I think they will try. Yeah. But I don't know, I don't know how, how far they'll get. Yeah. And we I, certainly will fight back. I think the other thing too, Anna, is that there's more cultural capital now than perhaps before. Um, mm, yes. So. And so, but I it's still, it doesn't matter. It's scary. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Um, and whenever you feel your rights are, you know, are being threatened, it, you not only, I think it's true, you feel scared, but you feel, you know, somehow that like less than. And, um, and so, you know, that's why I think characters like Cantor is really important um, that sort of, they suddenly have a fight in them, you know, I'm going to be myself no matter what. Yeah, and she, she does. That's exactly her. Her whole, she's, a, she's, a, I think of her as a life force. She, I, you know, I don't want to make her sound too serious all the time. Like when she is the big no, she tells the authority, <laughs> but she loves life. She, she enjoys her life. Um, and I think that's very important in her character for the reader that here's this, uh, this, this person from a marginalized group who fights every day to stay alive, uh, both because the government wants to criminalize her and because the underworld where she thrives, though, is a very difficult place to live. I mean, she lives in the world of killers and thugs and con artists and, and all of that. Now, she thrives there, but it's not an easy place. Nevertheless, with all of these burdens on her, which she handles uh, sometimes well and sometimes heartbreakingly, um, uh, nevertheless, she she really enjoys life. And I, she enjoys life because she's taken control of it, because she has given the oppressors the big no. And she knows the difference between rights and freedom. She's claimed freedom for herself, even though that freedom can be taken away by arrest and all of that, but she's claimed it internally for herself, whereas rights can only be granted by the people who have the authority to grant them. And she doesn't wait that long for an LGBTQ, you know, uh, um, civil rights kind of push. She says, I'm going to live my life now and take the risk of being imprisoned or worse, the psycho ward in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she really is a life force. She insists on enjoying living. And that's her strength, really. It's not only that she's defiant in the face of oppression. She insists on enjoying life. And I think that I, you know, I, I really hope that that's what readers connect with. And I think it is. Who do you um, use as an inspiration for this or do you for this character? It's, there's no one person who is an inspiration for it, for her. Um, she 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 really is a complete product of my imagination. She's a, a character that has been formulating in my mind for years before I ever put pen to paper, and various permutations of her sort of filtered around in my mind until until she finally emerged whole. You know, like a zine, like Athena emerging from Zeus's head. That's kind of how she was birthed. But as far as 
the style of the books and and the punch of the books and the the feel of them and you know the the dark side of them while they still have this golden glow um I'm very much influenced by the golden age writers of American crime fiction. Uh, you know, uh, 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 James M. Cain, excuse me, James M. Cain, Cornel Woolrich, that whole class of, you know, Raymond Chandler, all those folks, uh, were my influence. And then, um, in the, Eighties, the seventies and eighties, when a lot of lesbian literature, Sabrosa started coming out, um, uh, and I sort of was made aware that, hey, gee whiz, there are lesbians on the page feeling out and proud, uh, or not so out and proud sometimes, suffering for it, but insisting on, on living their lives. Um, the two of those, those two literary concepts came together for me and, and gave me the influence and the direction, um, that I could then go. Uh, as as a new author writing another Dyke character to add to the canon of of Dyke detectives, so to speak, even though she's a criminal. Oh, you know, um, it, it, but she had the ability um, to act differently. Um, how do, how do I say this? Um, so how do you say it? <laughs> yeah, how do what do you say? No, but in in the fifties. Um, mm-hmm. I think the big point for me, and maybe for young listeners who, who don't understand the difference in timing for mm. LGBT and Q and anybody else, um, but in the 50s, um, Cantor was stuck with the part of um, she could be arrested mm-hmm. just for being gay. That's right. This wasn't yeah. this wasn't about, okay, um, maybe marriage wasn't considered valid. This right. is about just your freedom. And like you said, a lot of people in, in my research that I've done um, in these times, there was a lot of people that thought that you were um, sick, you know, psychologically right. sick. So you should right. be locked up or put into right. an institute. So I think right. that's so she had she had a much bigger risk, mm-hmm. I would say, than, let's say, um, a lesbian of 2022. Indeed, she did. And her way of handling that is by subverting the risk, by living outside the mainstream, you know, by by actually adapting the life, adopting the life of a criminal. So she lives in a in a different world. She can because her clients, you know, she's an art thief. So her clients are wealthy collectors and museums and, you know, all of the people who live on the legitimate side of, of life. Um, so she can navigate both worlds, the upper world and the lower world. She navigates them very well. Um, and in that way, and of course, by earning so much money, she, and so she can afford, you know, a very good lawyer. And, you know, we all know that money protects people. She can, she can subvert the risk. Um, but she can't escape it altogether. Um, in all of the books, there's one police, there's one cop or another who, uh, would like nothing better than to finally collar her uh, and put her away. Um, but she's been savvy enough to be able to elude that. Um, she's, you know, it's not so much that she's smarter than they are as much as she knows how to elude them. Um, and, she, you know, she just, you know, she, she, she decided she's not a victim. Um, and so when you decide you're not a victim, then you're not one, if you know what I mean. And, you know, if you, if you, she doesn't give the cops any rope with which to hang her, even though they know damn well she's guilty of sin, as sin of, of thievery and smuggling. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I always felt, um, years ago, like in the eighties and even the early nineties. So I don't know about the fifties, but I always felt closer to the community and I felt the community was, uh, much more, um, together. Than they are today. Gosh, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, you, you, where you're talking about the fifties or later? Well, even right. You see, because I can only go by my own experience of like uh-huh. the eighties, of course, because that's I my age point. Right. But, uh, the fifties, I wasn't around. Um, right. So, but I'm just wondering what the community, if there was even a sense of community back then, because in the eighties uh. we sort of felt underground. You know, you right. sort of knew other people that were gay, and yeah. it was not something that you all talked about a lot. Yeah, it was it was similar in the 50s. Um, 
the the earliest books, the first book in the series comes out in uh, took place in 1949, when uh, there really was no real organized. I mean, there was a little bit here and a little bit there, some stuff going out on out in San Francisco, that sort of thing, but no real organized um, situation. Um, and yes, the gay community kind of knew each other, but very sub rosa. By the time you get to the early 50s and then the mid-50s, you had the Mattachine Society and then the Daughters of Belitis for the lesbians. Um, and you, you, it was the earliest stirrings of what was called at the time the homosexual rights movement. Um, and then as you move into the 60s and 70s with the general civil rights movement um, and feminism, you know, the, this, this, the LGBT community strengthened in one respect. But on the lesbian side of the house, it was actually, it, it took a long battle for the feminists to recognize us as part of that political struggle. But in any event, um, by, by the time you get to the late 50s and into the 60s, the gay community, both on, you know, the, in the whole LGBTQ spectrum, was starting to get more organized. So Cantor actually, she has some questions about this. On the one hand, she thinks it's, you know, a grand idea to fight back and all of that. I mean, you know, it's quite, sort of a no-brainer. On the other hand, be, you know, since she has thrived as a criminal and taken her life into her own hands, she asks, well, gee, what's the trade-off? Do I really want to become part of the mainstream world, criminal or otherwise? That, you know, because she recognizes that the goal of these political organizations is to become part of the American population. And she says, well, but what's the cost of that? What do I lose? I gain, you know, my rights and I gain a secure place in the world and I gain community and I gain, you know, citizenship privileges. But what do I lose culturally? What do I lose as far as my my individuality? So she has, you know, for somebody who's lived outside as a criminal and thrived in it, she has real questions about um, the direction of the LGBTQ civil rights movement. And it's interesting for me to write because I would not have the freedom to write all this or the freedoms that we enjoy now without the, the LGBTQ civil rights movements. Um, so having to write Cantor, who has not so much doubts, she doesn't doubt this, but she has questions about the direction. How long does it take you to put together one of these novels? Um, it, about a year and a half to two years, closer to two years, um, though I'm getting a little faster. <laughs> the more that I write, I get a little faster. So maybe now a year and a half. But uh, the first one took me close to four years because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, but recently it takes me about two years of constant writing to get to get a book into the shape that I want it to be. Yeah. Is that, is that because of a lot of research? Do you have to double check a lot of things for the timing? Well, I do. Yes, um, of course. Um, I have a lot of the research already under my belt. But because the books take place at, at, through the 1950s as time goes on, there's new research to do about any that, you know, whatever year the book is, is set in. So part of it is research, but part of it is I, just, I write very slowly. I just do. <laughs> I'm not one of these writers who can sit down and it pours out of me. Um, occasionally it does, but that lasts about a paragraph. And then it's, a, you know, and then it's really troweling down into myself to find, to find the book and to hear the, the characters and to find her and her associates and whatever, and all the secondary characters. So it's a long, slow process for me. I enjoy it, though. I have to say that. You know, and I want to take us back because I'm just fascinated by this idea of, um, you know, Cantor being a criminal and the and her uh, sort of absolute desire to st state her freedom and the connection between um, sort of criminality, you know, because uh, LGBTQ people have been criminalized, you know, but then the choice to actually also be a criminal in other ways. I'm actually teaching a class called Be Gay, Do Crime at VCU oh. next in the fall. And so I'm really thinking about both sides of that, both, you know, time periods when people, uh, queer people were criminalized and times, uh, you know, and there's a choice to maybe be criminal or, or move outside sort of the traditional uh, moral barriers of you know, time periods or just general, you know, moral barriers. Right. 
Did you, you know, when you were developing this character, did you have that in mind or was it more, you know, organic? Did it come from a place, um, you know, that you really kind of thought it out or was it sort of just your gut speaking to you? It was both, actually. Um, you know, when you think about it or when, when I was thinking about it, um, I thought about Cantor as a queer person, but also the world she lived in and, you know, the world now. If you live in a world uh, where the law um, uh, oppresses you and criminalizes you um, and wants to, uh, it, you know, if, where the society doesn't like you, not only for, say, for being queer, but perhaps for being the wrong color or the wrong religion or what have you. Um, you know, what kind of loyalty do you owe a law that thinks you have no rights? And, you know, it, it evolved in my head that Cantor realized she doesn't owe this the law uh, any loyalty at all. Now, how I got there was kind of interesting. It was sort of in the back of my mind. But when I started writing the books, I actually had her as a private investigator. But as luck would have it, um, um, and Al, we may have talked about this before. I don't I don't know. But um, I. I, I was living and working in San Francisco for a while doing art projects out there for some of your listeners may or may not know that I was a curator and art exhibition uh, specialist for years. And I was doing this work out in San Francisco. Um, but I had the opportunity, you know, just really by luck that I wound up with at, um, working as a report writer for a private investigations firm. So I saw the legal process, the legal system and crime up close and personal. And I realized that the criminal justice system, the legal system, was absolutely corrupt and broken, and I lost all faith in it. So that's when I realized the only way the Cantor, who was an outsider by virtue of being gay at a time when being gay was illegal, the only way that she could keep her honor and her integrity was by being outside the law and being a criminal. She could not work within the law and keep, keep her integrity. So that's how it finally evolved that Cantergold became an art thief and a smuggler as opposed to a private investigator. It's so interesting because I think part of the conversation that I had on that panel at Sleuthfest about amateur detective versus PI had to do with being an outsider and how amateurs are. I mean, BIs are outsiders too, in a sense, I think. Yeah, they yeah, they're, they're odd people. <laughs> yeah, they're more organized, out, or they're like almost like their job definition makes them an outsider, or amateurs are more yeah. like sly outsiders, or, you yeah. know. Um, and uh, it was just interesting, but there's something about the connection between choosing an amateur, sleuth, detective, what have you, and, um, and being an outsider. And, um, well, here's something that you might find interesting, John, and you may want to get in touch with Catherine B. Forrest for the opposite point of view. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was a groundbreaking, and she still is, but... Oh, a yeah, ground, I, I actually had a class from Catherine. It was right. hugely so you, influential in my... Right, life. so you know who she is. You know, she was a groundbreaking lesbian uh, author of crime and mystery novels and other things. And of course, she's extremely famous for the Kate Delafield series. And I just saw Catherine in Albuquerque at the Golden Crown Literary Society conference, and we had this lovely discussion. In any event, her Kate Delafield, her character of Kate Delafield is relevant to the discussion we're having because she handles the situation in the opposite way of Cantor. She becomes a police, a policewoman. Right. She's a cop. Uh, and she's a cop in the 80s. Uh, well, that's when the Delafield series started. Um, and she had to, and unlike Cantor, the way that Kate Delafield survives is by being in the closet on her job. Um, but she still believes in the rightness of the law. So, you know, there's two ways of handling our difficulties, you know, our oppression. Um, and Catherine brilliantly hand, has Kate Delafield handle it in one way. And Kate, you know, to my way of thinking, Kate Delafield is very brave despite the fact that she lives in the closet and she realizes as time goes on the kind of psychological damage that that uh, uh, you know, causes her, and for that matter, her relationships. Um, and yet she still has the bravery to go on uh, and co create a career in the police department where she, you know, where she helps people and solves crimes and so on. Um, so there's two ways of, you know, here you have two different authors dealing with the same problem of oppression, 
um, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and two, and two different ways of their characters handling that oppression. And I find that really very interesting in terms of, not only in terms of social issues, but in terms of art, in terms of literary art. Yeah, because it, it kind of approaches the way you tell a story differently. <laughs> exactly. And right? how you, and how you think of your, uh, you know, what do you describe as heroism of your character? For me, for Cantor Gold, her heroism comes in the fact that she takes her life in her own hands and she gives the government the big no. For, for Catherine, for Kate Delafield, her heroism is that she survives, she survives the oppression, uh, of the closet and still functions as someone who does good in the world as, as an officer of the law. I think that, you know, it's so interesting because I'm, I'm, you know, as I think about my own work, I, you know, have characters who are kind of, you know, even further out there, they're committing crimes. Perhaps we might, would not agree with these crimes, you know, but they're doing it just for this concept or the whole idea of the freedom at all costs, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, And, and even some pretty, maybe the cost is a lot. Maybe we even, you know, might, have to wrestle with the cost, but I think that that's such an interesting concept um, that you know that we're approaching the same problem, but from different points of view. I think um, I think very often um, uh, LGBT LGBTQ crime writers that might be sort of the central core of our plots is how do you handle a situation? How do you live in a world that hates you? And so, how does your protagonist handle? that life you know and for michael Navo with the rios novels you know he's a lawyer that he has one way of handling it catherine is another i'm yet another you're another um uh but i think that that might be the, sort of the central core of the directions that we take in having our crime solvers maneuver through a world that essentially doesn't like them and that would prefer that they were not there even today in our time of more acceptance than Cantor's time you, don't you still get the feeling that, gee, some, you know, okay, our allies have given us, uh, you know, the, the nod to our rights and support our rights and support marriage equality and all of that. But when it really gets down to it, they would sort of prefer that, if not, if that maybe not go away, but that we didn't have to fight, you know, we, we didn't have to bother them with, the, with these issues to help us get our rights and all of that sort of thing. Do you ever get that feeling from the larger world? Um, yeah, yes, I think there's definitely a sense of you have what you need now, you know. Yeah, sit down and be quiet, yeah. Sit down and be quiet, yeah. yeah. Um, don't put it in my face, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, and I think that uh, yet you, you know, I think you can probably go to any sort of sector, um, certainly in the writing world, and you see a lot of inequities. Well, and, yeah, and you and, and I. You and I are actually, you and I and Greg Heron and some of the, you know, and Michael Nob and some of the others are doing something about it. You know, we're all members of Mystery Writers of America and we are on the queer advisory board, haha, to try, you know, to try and get the crime, you know, crime literature's premier organization to take our literature seriously. Um, and, you know, we'll see how successful we are. You know, we're a new, a new group within the Mystery Writers of America. So we'll, but that's our function is to sort of lobby for getting the, the premier organization in our genre to, uh, to give us respect literarily. I mean, no, no LGBT book has won an Edgar Award. Now, Ellen Hart won the Grandmaster Award, which was wonderful for her body of work. But no book of hers, to my knowledge, was was honored with the award. So they honored her for a body of work without ever honoring anyone, any one of her books. They just can't go there uh, yet. And we're going to, you know, lobby for them to to go there. They, it's time for them to go there. That's right. Yes. Get out there. Yes. Get out there and let's burn our bras. Yeah. <laughs> I, I bet you're adorable in a bra, Alan. You're cute. <laughs> you know, uh, it depends. Uh, yeah, I, you know, some days. <laughs> you're probably well, as adorable in, in your bra as I am in my tidy whities Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go, everyone. Think about that. For a uh, well, so um, at the at, at the end of the day, but. Um, so each book in this series does it does it have an 
Well, I don't want to say that word agenda because nowadays that's very negative, it seems like. But does it, does it have a, a meaning to it? It does. Um, yeah. Each book sort of has a, you know, a thread, a thematic thread running through it. Um, as I say in this one, the, the thread was maintaining your place in the world, the honor of maintaining your place in the world. Um, so yes, each one of the books sort of has a premise. Uh, you know, some some element of life, of Cantor's life or a friend's life or some client's life, you know, some associate of her, some element of life is challenged um, uh, and resulting in murder and, and crime and so on that, that Cantor has to solve and save people, some, save somebody's life. Um, so, yes, there's a theme of some sort of honor or justice or the lack of it that she has to rectify. And in this new one, it's the idea of maintaining your place in the world, whether you're gay or anybody else. But in, you know, in this case, of course, it's Cantor maintaining her place in the world because someone wants to take it away from her. When you were creating Cantor, did you have a choice on, on what you were going to do with her in the sense of, because um, you've got her as a criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, was, that, was that just like a, um, a thought out choice by you? Or was it just, it just fit the, the character? Well, as I said, when I saw the criminal justice system, when I was working for the private investigations firm, writing their, their investigative reports, you know, I would look at the surveillance tapes and so on and the investigators' notes, and I would have to put it into a narrative, a very dry narrative. You know, they did this, they did this, the suspect went here, there, whatever. For the client, um, uh, I, I was, at that time, I was thinking about having her as a, as a PI. But my, my, my uh, mind was changed when I saw how broken the criminal, sus- uh, criminal justice system is. So I had already started writing her as a PI, and I had to rip that up and start all over again when I realized she had to live outside the law because there was no place for her within the law. And that's when she really started to blossom. I was struggling writing her, but once I put her into the criminal world, then she started to speak to me, and she really blossomed. So, so how is your, what is your experience with Cantor? Like, so when you are writing that character into the book or the book about her, um, do you have, um, an interaction with Cantor? Like, is it a, like a living being? I, yeah, that's an interesting question. I do, <clears throat> excuse me, I do, of course. Um, uh, yeah, uh, um, I hear her as I'm writing. I see her and I hear her and I feel her as I do all the characters in the book. If I didn't hear them or feel them, if I didn't experience through them, then I couldn't write them. But Cantor, of course, being the main character and the one that I lived with longest as a creator. um, Yes, I hear her. um, And I, you know, in in a manner of speaking, I speak to her. She, however, is not in the least aware of me. She doesn't speak to me. She speaks through me, but not to me. She's not aware of me at all. Um, but how could she be, I suppose? Um, uh, but I am, of course, intensely aware of her. Uh, and I, as, but, but as, as the creator of all the characters in the book, the recurring characters, as well as the characters that appear just in, you know, from book to book from, that don't recur, I'm aware of all of them. Um, and the recurring characters are as real to me, of course, as, as Cantor is, but so are the, you know, so are the ones that, that die off. They're real to me until they're dead. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, uh, you know, do you find yourself waking up in the middle of the night and find yourself holding a shovel or, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, you know, bl- you know, dirty, muddy shoes sitting beside the bed and you kind of, well, how did that happen? Yeah. I, yeah. Um, yes, I do. I will. Yes. Uh, When I wake up in the middle of the night and I have yet to see a body at the foot of the bed, but I um, I will make a note or yes, things do occur to me. She does interrupt my sleep. And if it's not Cantor who interrupts my sleep, it might be one of the other characters that interrupts my sleep. You know, they talk to me, too, or they don't talk to me. No, they don't. They talk through me. Um, But, yeah, they interrupt my sleep as as well absolutely 
Sure. Well, you don't hear these voices when you're driving, do you? Or yes. I, well, oh. <laughs> I, I, unfortunately, I don't drive anymore. Um, okay. But um, I do hear these voices, you know, when I'm on the subway. Yeah, I do. I hear them all the time. Um, but I do my best not to respond to them when I'm on the subway or whatnot because, you know, people look at you funny and I don't live well, They won't that. even notice. Come on, New York. Come on. <laughs> well, they all, they sort of move away, you know, from. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. You get your own seat. You get your then. own seat. Yeah. <laughs> true. Now, this is interesting because this, this character is very much a part of you. And so are a lot of the characters in your books, obviously. Mm-hmm. But when it, when it is like that, um, do you feel a certain responsibility to how you write your character or what you let people know about your character? Oh, heavens, yes. And that's true for the Cantor books, but it's also true of everything else I write. I write short stories, and I have a novella out there and another one that's going to probably come out in a couple of years, a year, yeah, I think two years, something like that. Um, and another book, uh, I've start, I wrote another book that isn't a Cantor Gold book that's, that Bywater Books is publishing next year. Um, yes. I mean, once you create a character, once you write a book and you create a community uh, of characters all doing something and acting out their their roles in a drama, you've created them, you've birthed them. So, of course, I have a responsibility towards them. I have a responsibility to portray them accurately and truthfully, whether they're the good guys or the bad girls. You know, uh, it doesn't matter. They have to their real selves, their human selves have to be portrayed with integrity, um, my integrity as an author, or it won't ring true to the reader. And I would be cheating the characters. And, you know, when, you, when you're writing along, John and Alan, I don't know if you've experienced this, but when you're writing along and you sort of lose that integrity, if something is goes, you know it, you know, boy, oh boy, they just go off and they let you know, <laughs> you know, that you've totally screwed up here. Um, and that, you know, your beautiful prose really has to go into the round file because, um, it, you, you know, you've lost the, the, the truth of that character. Um, so, yes, I do feel a responsibility towards them. I birthed them. Do you, do you feel a responsibility towards your children? Of course you do. Um, Absolutely not. Yeah, no. Well, that's something. <laughs> <laughs> no. Have you ever gone back? then mm-hmm. in this case to like book one or book two mm-hmm. and uh, re-looked at it and decide that you wished you had written them differently in those books? Um, in a way, it's not so much that I wish I had written the characters differently as much as I wish that I had written them better. You know, especially book one, uh, which was my first novel. I had some short stories published, but the first Cantor Gold book, Criminal Gold, was my first novel, my first long form. And in a way, ignorance is bliss. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just plowed ahead and, and did it. Um, I don't go back and read it a whole lot, but every so often, it, you know, I'll have to go back and look at it uh, because it is a series. So I have to make sure that, you know, all my facts and timelines line up. And I'll find things where I wish I had written a paragraph better, more musically or, uh, you know, better rhythm or that sort of thing. I wish the craft were better, but I, but my characters, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with how I depicted my characters even way back then, because I took, you know, like I say, it took me a long time to write them. And I really worked my way through them uh, with a lot of depth, but I do, do wish I had better craft <laughs> with book one than, 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 than I had at the time, but I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, you weren't the uh, Lambda winner you are now. No, indeed not. <laughs> but I was with book, I was with book two. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, you know what's what's really interesting? Uh, well, first of all, it just popped in my head, um, and I, I we there was one Edgar Award for a gay author, John Morgan Wilson. Oh, was there? Um, oh, I didn't know. Hmm. Yeah, ninety-seven. Yeah, I it, it took me a second to you know call. I, I should have called up his name faster, but I didn't. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it's still it's still really rare. Yeah. Um, that's not what I want to ask about though. Now, this is a totally selfish question because I'm working on the sequel to the Savage Kind. Oh, good. And um, how do you deal? You are your your series writer. How do you deal with not repeating too much? of the information from previous books, but enough so that a reader can pick it, pick it up mm-hmm. mid-series and mm-hmm. they'll find it to be a satisfying read. I mean, is that, 
you know, to talk about going back and rereading, I, it, it's a, I've, I've, I'm working through it and I find it to be challenging. So I'm curious if you have any, you know, good tips. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I don't find it a problem. I don't, I don't know why I, I can't answer your question as far as technique. I don't know why I find it a problem, but I, I am aware that I do have to keep readers, you know, catch readers up. If they haven't read, say, the first four books, they can they can read book five and you know and now book six without having read the others. Um, and I usually find a way in a conversation or an action or something where Cantor can remember something or other, or somebody says something that relates to a former situation from an earlier book, so that the reader has now that information about Cantor in their, in their reading arsenal. Um, but I don't, I, I don't sit there and explain. Um, <clears throat> I mean, in a way I do, but it wouldn't be more than a, a few sentences here, a sentence or two there that, that brings the reader up to date about why Cantor feels the way she does about something or other. And it may harken back to an earlier book. Um, and it usually does harken back to an earlier book that explains why she feels this this or that way about somebody or other or some situation. But I don't I don't I don't explain the whole thing. It's just as it happens in the plot, then I can introduce why she feels this way about that. And then of course there is the running thing. These are not romance novels, but there's always some, you know, marvelous femme fatale on Kendra's arm. She's a very sexual being. Uh, and it doesn't always work out well. Some of these women die. You know, sometimes they're the murder victim. Sometimes they're the killer. Um, but uh, there was a love of her life way back in book one. Um, and But we never see her even in book one, her, the character of Sophie. We never see her because she's been kidnapped. Uh, uh, well, she simply disappeared. We learn later she's been kidnapped. But she's disappeared, and Cantor never finds her until she gets a tip uh, which takes her into book four, where she goes to Cuba to find her. Um, and I won't give too much away, but, you know, she has to go to Cuba to find her. Um, and we, you know, uh, so we really never see Sophie, but that's the, you know, the fact that the love of Cantor's life was, uh, was stolen from her. Um, Cantor calls that the wound that will never heal. And that occurs through all of the books. And that's one of Ca uh, Cantor's, um, interior forces that drives her to do the things she does and, and drives her to be the person she is, is this loss of a great love. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's just, it's such, there's all, you have to, you don't want to slow readers down, right? Right. But you want to make sure they understand yeah. the character's motivations. Yeah. And, um, but the so best, I think the best way to do that is, to, or the way that it works for me uh, is, is to just weave that information into the plot so that right. it doesn't right. become this exposition about something, this, this lecture. Yeah. Here's a, here's a lecture here. You know. <laughs> yeah. That, that won't make anyone happy. No, not at all. <laughs> We had John Morgan Wilson on the show. Aha. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was back September of 2020. I thought so. I, I thought so. Yeah. Well, I stand uh, corrected. Awarded the Edgar by uh -huh. the Mystery Writers uh, of America. It's the first, not his first novel, best first, I think. Best was first it, novel. Simple, yeah. simple Justice. Was it an LGBTQ? Was it a gay novel? A gay theme novel? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, then yeah. I stand corrected. Still, yeah. one is you not exactly. Yeah, it's, it's like yeah. one. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you put your point still hold. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. One, it's not enough. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, so um, how do people get a hold of you? How does Lady Gaga contact you? <laughs> Lady Gaga can contact me anytime she likes. <laughs> um, although I, I think she's, isn't she married now? But, you know, so what? Oh, um, that, that never lasts yeah, long. Yeah, right. Those, <laughs> you know, come on. Um, Let's see, how can people get in touch with me? Well, yeah. Facebook, you know, you can just go Ann Aptaker or Ann Aptaker author at two pages. I'm on Twitter. I'm on, uh, on Instagram. I have not yet done TikTok because how do you do authors TikTok? I mean, I haven't figured it out yet, but at some point I probably will have to. It's the same thing as Instagram. So when you're posting a picture and a little thing on yeah, there, yeah. you do the same thing. I post the exact same thing on my uh, TikTok. On your TikTok. And has it worked for you? Do you get, you know. You know, I get anywhere from two to 700 hits per, oh, really? per, per oh, post. So oh. it's not, 
It's not um, anything magical. And just for, don't forget to hashtag it, like yeah. hashtag book talk, hashtag I see. Mm-hmm. whatever. It's the same sort of principle. I see. People yeah. look at it. And, yeah, well, I will have to, you know, yeah. I will have to, you know, sort of join the TikTok mob at yeah. some point. <laughs> John's in charge of it, so. Oh, oh no, I have yet to join myself. And I was having, and I was having the same conversation. Uh, it's good to know, Al, that it, you may not have to duplicate your materials. Yeah. Frankly, I'm at three three different social medias right now, and you're, you feel like you know I I'll be po- be posting more than I'll be writing. Yeah, oh, there's that. <laughs> I know that just. I know. Well, you guys, you, you Lambda winners, don't you have your assistants and entourage and oh, but, agents oh. and publicists <laughs> and all that stuff? You have like 10 people working for you. They can do it. You mean the, my staff of 20? Yeah. That are, yeah. No, I, I, I actually, I have, have I have a staff of 10, and I'm looking at them right now. I have five on each hand. Yeah. <laughs> well, assign one of them that job, and it's all done, right? Right, yeah. Being in charge is about delegation. Yeah, absolutely. But they complain I work them to death, though, with all of this. Well, they just uh, feed them less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Torture. I mean, do, you, do you run a website, too, then, or no? Not yet. I've been toying with it. I, You know, um I haven't figured that out yet. I had one and then I didn't have one and I don't have one now, but, um, but that doesn't mean that I won't have one in the future, but it's one more thing to, you know, to, to screw around with, with the social media and whatnot. And I have all kinds of stuff on my plate. What I need to do is find somebody to set it up for me because I was an abject failure at doing that. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, John, John's pretty good at that. Yeah, I did it myself. Did I, you? I, I, did you? Yeah. Really? Oh, well, yeah. we'll talk. Okay. <laughs> well, so it's been a great conversation as usual. Uh, we had uh, Mrs. Daga on, and uh, <laughs> the the book, of course, is called Hunting Gold. Exactly. And it's mm-hmm. Book six mm-hmm. in, the, in the Cantor Gold Crime series, right. and the authors are guests, and it's uh, Ann Aptaker. So thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, and John, thank you for uh, for showing up. It was great to talk to you again. And Absolutely. Congratulations yeah, on you know right. congratulations on the Lambda. Really proud of you. I was really happy when you won. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino movie reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.com. HouseofMystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.